every author obsesses over one single date, the day their book gets published, their pub date. All those rigorous edits and deadlines leading up to that one infamous day when the book and author has been living, breathing, and conceiving for years is launched into the world. This is a show about pub dates, a place where we delve into the story, behind the story of how a book comes to market. I'm your host, Allison Trowbridge. I'm an author myself and the founder CEO of Copper, a platform that connects authors and readers around books. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hudgens. So welcome to our pub date. Pull up a chair and grab yourself a libation. We may not be in a pub, but we'll definitely be raising a glass in celebration. Reza Aslan, I am so thrilled to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank, Thank you. For being you. Here. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I didn't tell you this, but I actually read Zealot when it first came out, however long ago that was, maybe seven, eight 2013, years ago. 2013, 2013, yeah. And was blown away by it. You're writing and researching, and you are just. I mean, like I bow down to you as an <laughs> author already. And so when I heard that you had a new book coming out, I was over the moon. And I also am honored to be a dear friend of your wives as well. Yeah. So it's so great to connect with you. And I'm so excited to hear about just... Actually, first, I'd love to start with with why this story. Of all the stories you could choose, why did you choose this story to tell an American martyr in Persia? You know, the story of Howard Baskerville, who's the center of, of this book, is one that I feel like I've sort of known all my life, you know, as far as mm -hmm. I, as long as I can remember his name, it's kind of rattled around in my head, you know, the way that I think a lot of Americans grow up, he, you know, hearing certain stories like George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. And you're like, where did I hear that? I have no idea yeah. where I heard that story. It's just kind of in my head, which totally. is, by the way, total BS. He never did that. What? <laughs> I know. I know. No. The whole story is made up. The entire story was completely made up. But, you know, I, when I was growing up in Iran, people still cared about Howard Baskerville. You know, mm. at that point, he'd been dead for a century and he still was a prominent figure. As I say in the book, there were schools named Howard Baskerville, streets and coffee shops and restaurants. And I think his story, this incredible, almost hard to believe story about a 22-year-old Christian missionary from Nebraska wow. who despite the fact that it's the last place on earth he wanted to go, gets a position in Iran, it was known as Persia back then, and who shows up smack dab in the middle of the first democratic revolution in the Middle East. And, you know, it takes some time and some pretty remarkable events, some twists and turns, but eventually ends up abandoning his missionary post and his teaching job, giving up his American citizenship and fighting along his alongside his students in that wow. revolution for, you know, the most basic rights that the Iranian people were fighting for back then. Uh, this was in 1906, 1907. It just, that's a story that 
just absolutely has always been a part of who I am as a person. Wow. But no one's ever, no one's ever tried writing this book before because frankly, that's all that anyone ever knew about Howard Baskerville. Okay. So he was a kid, he was 22, he was a missionary, yeah. came to Iran, fought in the revolution, died and is considered a, a hero and a martyr in Iran. That's all I knew. And it wasn't until the process of really digging deep and researching this story that made me realize just how much more remarkable and extraordinary this life was. This kid who sacrificed himself for the freedom of people that he didn't know, you wow. know, a, a cause that wasn't really his, a nation that wasn't his, but was willing to do so because he truly believed that people should have human dignity and rights and a say in the decisions that ruled their lives. And he was willing to to die for that belief. It's, it's an extraordinary story. Wow. What, what was the point for you as an author? You've had this incredible, incredible career as a writer. What was the point for you in which this story kind of came to the forefront of your mind as the next thing you were going to devote years of your life to? Well, it's funny you say that because originally I was planning on writing a screenplay based on Baskerville's life. And no I had already sort of been commissioned to do so by a major Hollywood studio, and that's kind of what I was going to do. And then in the process of, of putting together this screenplay, it occurred to me that, you know, the real story, the actual true story of Howard Baskerville is so much better than any kind of made for Hollywood version that I could write. And so it was funny enough in the process of, beginning the outline of that screenplay that I realized, you know what? I don't want to write a screenplay about this kid. I want to write a book about this kid. Wow. And so I abandoned that and began diving headfirst into this book. It's funny because sometimes, sometimes the true story is so crazy that you, you don't want to tell it in any other form because people will say, well, that's that you're just making that up. That's not real. That didn't really happen. And I think, you know, the process of writing this this book is a way to kind of break through that and say, no, 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 this is, these are real people and this really happened. Wow. You know, we, we talk to a lot of authors of nonfiction, but like from, you know, business and, <laughs> and startups or memoir or also fiction authors who are just making it up mm -hmm. as they go, which is its own incredible process. But I'm so curious what it's like to write historical nonfiction where you can't, you know, call somebody up and just say, Hey, what happened? What's your version of events? Like, where does one even begin to tackle a book like this yeah. and the research side of it? Can you tell us about that process? Yeah. Well, look, I pride myself on being first and foremost, a storyteller. So I don't mm -hmm. care if I'm telling the story of Jesus or if I'm telling the story of Howard Baskerville, you know, it's all storytelling for me, no matter how deeply I'm immersed I am in the history and in the research and in the, you know, rank academic work necessary to kind of, you know, get to the, the true events. The question then becomes, how do you, how do you tell, you know, that life? And for me, it always starts with the character that you, mm. you get to know the central person so well by by researching them you know everything that there is to know 
that you can make them come alive, you know, make them feel like a real actual human being. I think what a lot of people who love Zealot talk to me about is that it's the first time that they saw Jesus as a person. Wow. You know, like Jesus is always this kind of, I don't know, this kind of celestial yeah. being who like has no human motivations and yeah. it's like there's nothing human about him, but putting him in his time and place and having him act you know, and respond to the challenges of his time. I think even for hardcore believers, hardcore Christians was a revelation because yeah. they, they're not, they're not taught to think about Jesus in those terms. And honestly, yeah. the same goes true for Howard Baskerville. It's a kid about which very little is written. You know, he, was alive and he took part in, a, in an incredible moment in history, the Persian Constitutional Revolution of 1906. This, the, as I say, the first democratic revolution in the Middle East, this extraordinary event that for a very, very brief time turned Iran into a constitutional monarchy. But it was just about putting him in that time and place, knowing everything about him and then letting him move through his space, you know, and and making him a human being and having mm. him come alive as a person with like desires and fears and hopes and aspirations. I think that's just what all good storytellers can do. And it really doesn't matter what genre you are writing. I tell my, I, I teach creative writing and I always tell my students, there are only two genres of writing, good writing and bad writing. <laughs> That's, That's it. <laughs> well, and as you're talking, I'm just thinking it's like history gave you the bones and then you get to put flesh on it. You get to like yes. really bring, bring breathe life into the story that that we connect with on a different level when we get the narrative and the narrative makes it even more true than just the facts. Yeah. And, you know, people say this all the time that like history is written by the winners, the victors. True but it's written by storytellers, mm. you know? And so well said. It's, it all depends on what kind of story you're trying to tell. And in this particular case, you know, this is, I guess, really more than anything else, a story of transformation, a story of redemption. After all, here is this kid, this white, privileged, you know, Christian kid with a degree from Princeton University who goes to Persia, this land of darkness and, and fear, you know, in order to bring salvation, to save the souls of these poor, unfortunate people, and ends up through his experiences and his actions and the decisions that he makes, ends up finding salvation himself, ends wow. up understanding for himself. He came to Persia to teach Persians what it means to be a Christian and an American. And they ended up teaching him what those things mean. Wow. Uh, to the point where in order to be a real Christian, he had to give up his missionary position. In order to do what an American would do, he had to give up his citizenship. Wow. To quite literally lay down his life for his brethren who he was there to serve. It was exactly. like everything, everything yeah. became... True and real. It's like what? it's like flipping the white savior story on its head. You know, yes. here's a guy who went out there to be a white savior yeah. and ended up being saved himself. As a martyr. Mm -hmm. That's 
That is profound. And I'm so curious, why do you think most Americans don't know this story or haven't heard, haven't, yeah, haven't heard this narrative, don't, don't have context for it? You know, I used to always just think because, you know, Americans don't care. That's why. Hmm. But when I started researching this, there's a couple of things that came out that I was really shocked by. One of which is near the end of his life when he had, you know, given up his missionary position and he had given up his American citizenship in order to to fight alongside his students in this revolution. The Presbyterian church that sent him to Iran understandably freaked out. (laughs) You know, understand they can't they can't have their missionaries taking up arms against the governments in the countries that they're being sent to. That's an absolute disaster. (laughs) Yeah, that's a (laughs) no-no. For the mission. And, you know, they had only been sending missionaries out for about 80 years at that point. So, you know, the the Presbyterian Foreign Board Board of Foreign Missions, it's a very new thing. And, And I think they were looking at Baskerville's actions and thinking, you know, is the Russian emperor ever going to let us to bring a, another missionary? Is will the Chinese emperor let us bring any more missionaries? There? I mean, if if it starts to get out there yeah. that one of our missionaries, yeah. uh, you know, fought against the government that you know he was sent to serve in, you know, we'll never let we'll never have anyone else come in there again. And so, the the Presbyterian, the head of the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions, a man by the name of Robert Spear, when he received a memo from the State Department saying, hey, one of your missionaries in Iran is fighting a revolution. Come get him, you know, because we tried. We tried to go get him and he gave us his passport and said, "Okay, I guess I'm not American anymore. So you don't have any control over me. So you like you're the people who sent him here. Go and get him. (laughs) And the. The board, after what I can only imagine must have been a very panicked meeting, sent a brief memo back to the State Department that basically said, Howard Baskerville is not one of our missionaries. He's a teacher at a missionary school, and therefore we have no responsibility. And so therefore we are washing our hands of the whole affair. Wow. And, you know, it's funny, I, I read a lot of the, the the internal memos going back and forth at the State Department when they received this. And they were like, what? I'm sorry, he's not a missionary. He's a teacher at a missionary school. Like, what, <laughs> what is the difference exactly here? But I think, you know, both the Presbyterian Church and the American government were uh motivated to make sure that this is not a story that got a lot of attention. When Baskerville first joined the revolution, there were front page stories in the New York Times. Wow. American joins the Persian revolution in the London Times. When he died, there were articles written in uh, English papers across the world. American dies fighting in Iranian revolution. But I think because of the vested interests involved in making sure that this story went away as fast as possible. Wow. It never, it never stuck. Whereas in Iran, Howard Baskerville is a kid that you would read about in your history books. Really? I mean, there's, you know, the, the museum dedicated to the revolution of 1906 has a gigantic golden bust of Howard Baskerville in it. Wow. Um, you know, so for more than a hundred years, you know, he was this American who was a hero to 
countless generations of Iranians, whereas most Americans had never heard of this kid before. Oh, it's so fascinating. I feel like those are the best stories to get told. And it feels... It feels so timely on so many levels. I mean, Iran has been in the news quite a bit this last week. Talk to us about the things that you're seeing and kind of this full circle moment, what's happening on the ground there, why the story matters now more than ever. Yeah, for full circle is right, as depressing as that is, unfortunately. I mean, look, What's been taking place in Iran for the last six or seven or eight months has been in and of itself unprecedented. We have seen almost daily protests from farmers and factory workers and unions and retirees. There's been, you know, a huge amount of economic and social turmoil. 50% of the population lives under the poverty line. The inflation rate is almost 50%, which is insane. Wow. Um, Wow. There's been price hikes of up to 300% for, you know, some basic goods. And then what happened with this young woman, Masa Amini, who was beaten to death by the morality police, you know, for having a, you know, a loose hijab. I think that that was in many ways the last straw. Yeah. And what we are seeing in Iran right now, it can't be described as an uprising. It can't be described as, you know demonstrations. This is nothing short of a revolution. In fact, if anything, it reminds me a lot of the 1979 revolution, which people forget started in 1977, right? It Mm. was two years of a slow burn that then suddenly resulted in the collapse of the government. This is a nationwide protest. It's taking place in the majority of the provinces in Iran, it, it's young people and old people, it's conservatives and progressives, it's wow. men and women. It's actually regime supporters who are also out there saying this has gone too far. I think we're at a, a, a point right now in Iranian history where we might look back and say this was the moment when everything changed. But even as I say that, I recognize that we've had moments like that before. You know, hmm. there, there were three major revolutions of the in the 20th century in Iran in 79 and 53, and then the revolution that basketball fought in in 1906. And every one of those revolutions was about the most basic, basic need, the ability to have a say in the decisions that rule your life, hmm. you know, the freedom to think and act and believe and say what you actually want to. Like th- these are not huge demands. Yeah. The, the, the most basic forms of human dignity. And yet here I am watching young Iranians dying on the street, asking for the exact same thing as the young Iranians who died alongside Howard Baskerville asked for 116 years ago. It, I am, I am, absolutely in awe of the bravery of these Iranians. I support them with all of my being, but I can't also help but be heartbroken to think that, are we still doing this? Are we still fighting for the same thing that we've been fighting for since 1906, for God's sake? Wow. Wow. And this must be so surreal on such a personal level for you because 
did you did, correct me if I'm wrong? You left yeah. during the '79 yeah, yeah. revolution. I, I, right? I lived through that revolution. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched it happen, and you know, we had to flee quite suddenly wow. when the government collapsed in in '79. And so, you know, I've been watching Iran ever since. But I can say with a, a pretty extreme measure of confidence that I've never seen it like this before. Like wow. what's happening in Iran right now? You know, a lot of people are talking about it's very much like the, the 2009 Green Revolution. No, it's not. Mm. The 2009 Green Revolution was peaceful, nonviolent marches in response to a stolen election, primarily in Tehran and primarily by young people. This is a nationwide violent uprising. Nobody is marching. Wow. <laughs> Nobody is calling for nonviolence and, and, you know, slogans. Yeah. This is what I'm seeing right now, as I said earlier, can only be described as revolution. Wow. Wow. And, and going back to someone who is, is outside of Iran, doesn't have context on, on this issue. Why is it so important for them to read this book, to, to understand what's happening on the ground, like yeah. the, yeah. To... Look, you know, there's been 40 years of animosity between the Iranian government and the American government. I mean, the yeah. American government, regardless of whether we're talking about Republicans or Democrats or, you know, whatever, the American government has always seen Iran as sort of one of its primary enemy. And I think most mm -hmm. Americans, you know, even those who don't, really pay that much attention, you know, to the current events, have this skewed understanding of Iran based on, you know, kind of what we hear in the media and what we hear from our politicians and, and leaders. But that image could not be more incorrect. I mean, the Iranian people themselves are unquestionably the most pro-American population in the Middle East, if not the world, honestly. Wow. Wow. Um, and the the things that we as people, Americans and Iranians, have in common with each other go back, like I say, you know, uh, generations. I mean, there's so much that binds our two people together. And I think that the story of an American, and not just an American, I mean, this he wasn't some like, you know, hippie, hippie kid. <laughs> you know, we're talking about an evangelical Christian missionary yeah. from Nebraska. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, the fact that he was able to understand what I just said in the most visceral way, that he was, he was able to look at these people and say, we are the same, is extraordinary. At the end of Baskerville's life, I guess maybe a few weeks actually before he, he was killed in battle. The American consul general in Tabriz, the city in which he lived, made one last try, one last attempt to get Baskerville to desist from his revolutionary activities. He actually went to him on the battlefield and begged him to stop mm. and come home. And he said something very fascinating. He said, this is not your fight. Like, these are not your people. This is not your country, right? This is not your revolution. It's not your fight. Stop and come back home. And Baskerville said, and these are his words that have 
sort of echoed across the last century. Baskerville kind of swept his hand across, you know, the battlefield and all these people, young, old men, women, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Baha'is, Zoroastrians, people who have all kind of put aside all their differences and came together to fight for their rights. And he says, the only difference between me and these people is the country of my birth. And that is not a very big difference. And that message is as resonant today as it was revelatory back then. You know, this idea that what you are seeing on the streets of Tehran and Isfahan and Kermanshah and Qom and Mashhad, that's you. Yeah. That's you. There's no difference between you and those people. It just so happens to be that you were born here and they were born there. And that is literally the only difference. And if this book could, and, and, and the revival of Baskerville's memory could just remind people of that most fundamental truth, then that's it. That's, that's all I can actually hope for. Wow. I couldn't think of a more timely, poignant message and, and the timing of when this book is coming out and in a, in a world that feels so polarized and like we've never had more of this sense of enemy and reframing all of that into neighbor and into this sense of camaraderie and into a rethinking around what it means to, to see the other as as neighbor and friend. And I, I just think the the story is is so beautiful, so timely. And I'm just so grateful that you wrote it. I, I can only imagine it was a challenging book to write. You said something the other day that that you said this book is is good. And it's really good. <laughs> and I know as an author, it's so yeah, hard. Yeah, we don't to say stuff like that. Say yeah. that about your own work. I I, you know, I, I don't think people realize how how as authors, we're so critical of ourselves. And so yeah. I just, as we, as we kind of wrap, I just would love to hear your final reflection on looking at this book and saying, this is good. You know, it's the most personal book I think I've ever written. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but see myself in Howard Baskerville. You know, I, I'm a spiritual person. I believe that you know, there's this amazing verse in, in the Bible, in the, the epistle of James, where he says, faith without works is dead. Mm. Show me your faith. You know, I mean, show me your works by your faith and I'll show you my faith by my works. And that's always been sort of a, a deeply meaningful verse to me. You know, I've always thought to myself, like, what what good is it to believe something if you don't actually put it in practice? That's, that's not those aren't beliefs, yeah. right? And to see this example of a kid who took that idea to its absolute extreme. You know, mm. what would Jesus do? Like, yeah. like people say this all. The time, what would Jesus do? You know what Jesus yeah. would do? Sacrifice himself. That's what he would do. <laughs> and wow. here's a kid who said. That's what he would do. And that's wow. what I'm going to do, you know? And the fact that he's 24, you know, like I just turned 50 this year. And I just, I think about who I was when I was 24. I didn't know anything. I was so lost. And this kid was like, this is who I'm going to be. And this is what I'm going to do. I, I think, you know, it's, I, I don't want to sound, you know, too e- emotional here, but 
she's my hero. Yeah. You know, this this kid is my hero. And and I could only hope to to kind of walk in his footsteps. And also, you know, one of the things that I that I would just want to say for a lot of your listeners, I know that times like these, when you're seeing, you know, the images coming out of Iran and and you and you empathize and sympathize and you think to yourself, okay, what can I do? Like I'm not gonna, I can't be basketball. I'm not gonna go to Iran and fight alongside, you know, these people. That's not in the cards. And I think also nowadays there's there's so much uh, criticism on so-called slacktivism. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, you, oh, you're sharing this stuff on social media, and you think you're doing something. You think you're actually changing anything? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Here's yeah. what I can tell you is that that 19-year-old woman in Iran who is risking her life by showing her hair and who is out there on the streets right now, the fact that you know she exists, the fact that you are sharing that video on Facebook, the very fact that you are saying, hey, I get this. This mm. is me. I, I see you. I hear you. Mm. You have no idea how important and powerful that is. I am tired of people crapping on slacktivism or hmm. keyboard activism. Sometimes yeah. not only is it all you can do, but sometimes it's the best thing that you can do. So yeah. pay attention, see what's going on, find out the history of it, find out why. And so the next time some you know jerk off tells you, ah, those Iranians, we should just bomb them all or whatever, you know you know what the truth is. You know how to respond. Don't deny the value and the importance of just knowing. Hmm. Hmm. That gave me chills. It's like, how do we all take a little bit of Bask- Baskerville and, and model that in our lives, wherever we are? He found yeah. himself in Iran <laughs> and wherever you find yourself today, what does it mean to, sh- to demonstrate that show of solidarity even if it if there's a cost to it. Exactly, exactly. Reza, it is so good to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your book with us and with the world. And I cannot wait to see the impact that this has. So grateful for you. Thank you, Ali. I really enjoyed the conversation. 